and that we don't realize who the antagonist is and we're kind of watching her become that mm-hmm. while we're watching our heroes fight her. And you're so you're talking about Cassie, right? <laughs> oh no, you didn't. <laughs> Welcome back to Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys Rewatch podcast. I am one of your hosts, Beep, and I am joined as always by Cece. We did tell you last week that our next upcoming episode was going to cover 106 through 108 of the series, but surprise, we were actually joined this week by writer Sean Tretta, who, while having written a litany of episodes on the show, is responsible for some of our favorite episodes, like Lullaby, Blood Washed Away, Thief, and Demons, which are not only great episodes of the series, but just great episodes of television in general. Some of our favorites, you know, I mean, no big deal. We're not, we're not sold necessarily. <laughs> we're totally calm. It's fine. Totally calm. No, no. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. So we are going to present you with that first this week. Uh, we get into a lot. It is, as always, filled with feels and Cece wants to make sure that you guys know. I mean, just an Rather than a feels disclaimer this week, it's an existential crisis disclaimer. You might want to pour yourself a stiff drink as we reconsider the Red Forest. So with no further ado, here's our interview with Mr. Sean Tretta. Sean, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. So we have some new listeners and some longtime fans, but just for our pe- folks who have just binged the show, can you tell us a little bit about how you started out writing in television and how you came to work on 12 Monkeys? Well, yeah, so I, uh, grew up in, uh, I grew up in LA, but my family ended up moving to Arizona. So I was actually living in Arizona when I got the job on 12 Monkeys. And um, I was uh, basically like an independent filmmaker in Arizona. I was writing and directing and editing uh, my own movies. And uh, I'd made about four of them and I was looking to make my fifth. And I got hooked up with this manager guy who's like, you should try writing a TV pilot. And at this point, you know, I'm watching more good TV than sort of, you know, low budget horror movies, right? And so I, okay, so I wrote this pilot and like the crazy miraculous thing happened where he ended up uh, optioning it to imagine about, um, about two months later. Um, so it was like my first pilot out the gate and suddenly I basically had like a buyer for it. So I, I came out to LA and I met with them and I didn't have an agent. I was like desperately in need of one. And they're like, well, now you have a, a pilot that somebody wants. Like, which agent do you want? You know, it was, it was a total thing, you know, role reversal from what I was doing in Arizona. So uh, a couple months later, the agents were like, you know, it's staffing season. Um, do you want to come out and, uh, you know, start, you know, interviewing for, for shows, for staffing on shows? And I came out and you know, I met on things like, you know, Gotham and, and, you know, The Flash. Those were, uh, shows that were popping up. And, um, I got a call from, uh, my agents one day and they're like, listen, the guys who are gonna, um, do the, the series version of 12 Monkeys read your script and they want to meet. 
can you be here tomorrow? And I was in Arizona and I was like, no, I cannot. Um, I have a day job, you know, I've already been like lying my ass off in terms of like where I've been going to California for like meetings and things like that. And agents like, look, here's the deal. I'm like, I can come Thursday because they want me to come on a Wednesday. And uh, my agent said, look, if you come Wednesday, you got a 95%. If you could just show up and prove you're not a psychopath, <laughs> they'll hire you. Thursday, it's like a 50% shot. So it's like, okay, it's what I got to do. So I, I got in the car and I drove out to LA and I met with Terry, Travis, and Natalie and, and, and the meeting went well. And as I was driving back to Arizona, I get a call and they're like, you're hired, be here in 10 days. So it's like, I called my wife and like, pack up her shit, we're going. Um, so uh, yeah, so came out and, and uh, worked on uh, 12 Monkeys, started off as a staff writer. And uh, luckily, they, um, you know, they, they, they gave me a lot of work to do. And, and I was able to um, get promoted in season two. And then I got a big promotion between season two and season three, where I got to skip a couple levels. So uh, it was great. It was, it was, you know, best opportunity of my life. Wow. And then you went on to like, write some of our favorite episodes of TV ever um, and make lots of people <laughs> throw stuff at the TV or cry or <laughs> all of those emotions. Um, so when I think one of the things that always jumps out at us, I think we spent a lot of time talking about this show is it has the craziest, most complex plot maybe mm. like ever. Um, and yet you have, all of these really sometimes quiet moments um, of dialogue between characters. And it just has character work that maybe I don't feel like we necessarily always see on genre shows. Mm. So when you were sitting down to write an episode and you're trying to keep track of all of the things that need to happen and the moving pieces, how did you focus as a writer? Okay, but there's just two people talking in a room. You know, I, I think what really worked for us, and which is always great for writing character moments, I don't think the complex plots actually hurt the story. I think they make them better because complex scenarios make make for very poignant discussions, right? So when the stakes are so incredibly high, when you have people who are um, having moments with each other when this may be the last moment they ever speak, or, you know, they're facing death or they're revealing something about themselves that they haven't because they know time is precious. It, it allows you to write scenes in sort of a heightened way where people have, you know, no choice but to be open and honest or confrontational. Um, I always felt that, you know, when the scenario is right and you put the characters in um, a situation that, that, that makes sense and you really understand what their point of view in the moment is, the dialogue almost writes itself. Um, and so, um, you know, that, that was kind of my experience. I mean, like, honestly, some of the most complex scripts were the easiest to write, like, you know, lullaby with all the, you know, time travel and the loop and the repeating stuff. That one was a breeze. Um, because it, the scenario created, moments that just lend itself like you know you just knew what the dialogue was you knew who the characters were and so you get them in those scenarios together and you're like of course they would say this you know you just at a point they come alive and they just start to speak to you themselves 
Um, so I, I, I you know, it, it's, it's harder, I think, to write compelling dialogue when people have nothing to do. You know what I mean? Um, that's, that ends up being, I think, more difficult. A lot of people, I think, though, would have, especially in an episode like Lullaby, taken the opportunity just to write more loops than do some of the conversations that you did. So you have no idea how much we appreciate you allowing those characters to speak. Yeah, I mean, you, you could, you know, certainly that was always the balance on, on the show. And it was a big, not to say a, a problem, big concern. It's like, how, at what point do we tell so much story and we make it so twist and turny that it becomes incomprehensible and then the, the audience, they don't care about the characters anymore. And it was something we were always, always conscious of. Were there any uh, char- particular characters, voices, or relationships that came easy to you? Um, that they came easy. Uh, you know, like uh, there wasn't there wasn't a particular character that I disliked writing for or loved writing for more than others. I mean, like it was great fun. You know, I'm a you know, like you know, I'm a 41 year old like half Mexican guy, and I get like a super massive kick out of writing for this like 65 year old German lady. You know, um, <laughs> I can imagine. Or you know, like Deacon is fun in history, and Jennifer is just like Jennifer is the is like the has, is just the license to basically do anything you want. And it was really interesting because you had you have one character that in our series exists in sort of three major time periods of her life. You have the young one who's sort of searching for who she is. You have the old one who uh who knows who she is and you have the one in the middle like in lullaby territory who's like i'm i'm kind of there you know <laughs> like I'm, I'm getting the hang of this you know and and so they were they were all fun to write i mean you know one i, pre- I ended up writing a lot for was uh surprisingly as agent gale even though i didn't uh particularly write any specific agent gale episodes but the first time we introduced gale um it was, you know, it was, it was kind of a, a bit of a stock, like FBI character, you know, like just a, like a regular G man. Terry's like, you know, he kind of needs a voice. And I was just like, I think he's just kind of like this, you know, sarcastic, surly guy who tells a lot of dick jokes. Um, and that just sort of became who he was. He's like, he's the colorful, semi inappropriate, you know, big hearted guy, but, you know, not definitely not a schmuck. And, uh, you know, so, so he, he was a blast. And the, the, the great thing about Soul Monkeys is that, you know, there's no, I don't know that there will ever be another show that any of us as writers are going to work on that's going to have such a diverse, uh, stable of characters to write for. Um, people come from different places, different time periods, different, you know, point of views. Um, it was, it's, you know, uh, yeah. So in answer, no, nobody really stuck out. It's like when, you know, you're writing Cole and Cassie together and it's like, you know, big moments like in Blood Wash, Washed Away or in some of the other things, it's, um, they're the most fun to write for. And then you may have a thing where it's like, I love writing for Palin Man. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, to me, this is going to sound sort of like cheesy and, and, and I hope this doesn't come across as like conceited in a way, but like, and I, and I know Terry would vouch for this is, you know, as we were doing this, we were big fans of what we were doing in, in, in respect that we were writing stuff that we wanted to see and, um, and just having fun with it. And when we came up with like a big plot twist or something like that, or something that we knew 
would excite bands, it excited us first. Um, so, you know, the, the whole 12 monkeys thing was just a, was just an awesome playground to mess around in. Do you have, just keying off of that, do you have a particular memory of you guys in the writer's room being like, oh man, that's going to make them freak out? <laughs> like oh, an idea God. you came up with? <laughs> I mean, yeah, lo- lots of those, lots of those. Um, yeah, it was, you know, it, the, the thing about the writer's room is that, you know, we did four seasons, but for us, it was basically three because we did season one. And then, you know, we, we took a break and we were waiting to see if we'd be picked up. And then we got picked up and we did season two. And we were really proud of season two. We thought we were, we were really coming into our own in terms of the show. And then the numbers came like we're like, we're going to be picked up for season three. As soon as the, all the premiere, all the, the, the premiere episode has to do is like match what we did the year before. And it came in lower and we're like, Oh shit, you know, and we for a long time didn't know if we were going to be able to finish the story. And it was, it was that time where, you know, is that towards the end of season two where we were like, Oh, we know where this is going. And wouldn't it be awesome if we got to finish this? And we didn't want to be, you know, we were all big fans of things like Lost and stuff like that. And we loved like sort of the twists and turns and the reveals there. But we also made it a point of like, we want to stick the landing with this thing. We want to tie all the loose ends together. Every little thing that we introduced, we want to like pay off. And we wanted so desperately to have the opportunity to do that. And it didn't seem like we were going to. And I remember like I'd go and have lunch with Terry and we'd sit there and be like, yeah, we're probably not coming back. But if we did, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we're going to make Olivia the, you know, the the villain and, and, and all this other stuff. And so when we got sort of word that, hey, you guys are coming back two more seasons and you get to finish your story, it was like the greatest thing that could possibly happen to us. But those last two were back to back. So it's like a blur, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, I just got – as you were describing that, I got nervous even though I know that you guys got picked up. Thank God. I know. I was like, what if they don't make it? No, yeah, it was – yeah, it was <laughs> – no, and, and like at this point, like I said, we were, we were so invested in getting to tell this story and getting to finish it. It became so important that it was like – it was – you know, it was depressing. Like, you know, it's like we, we just – it wasn't, you know – you know, we all had prospects of jobs and things like that. So it wasn't about the financial part of it. It was just creatively, like, we know, we know where we want to go with this. We just want to have the opportunity to finish it. And so few shows get that, you know, and when we got that guarantee of like, here it is now, 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 you know, stick the landing or else. Um, it was, it was, yeah, we were just so incredibly happy. And then it became basically like, making 20 movies back to back and it almost killed us. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But the stick, the landing part, Mm -hmm. I mean, that I feel we actually, that was the first thing that we talked about um, when we became so obsessed with the show that we started a podcast that, (laughs) that the ending elevated everything so that even there's a lot of shows that we that i you know that i can say that i have loved but then the ending you're kind of like well it kind of colors looking back on everything yeah um so is that sort of a unique experience that you've had of of knowing that kind of passion for like we need to know where we're going yeah um it is 
Yeah, totally. It was, um, you know, it was, it was an incredibly unique situation. Like we weren't a hit show and like, and even if we were a hit show, like, you know, uh, you know, we, we still didn't have the power to be like, you know, our story ends after season four. You know what I mean? It was, uh, you know, we were just sort of begging to get to sort of continue. Like, you know, certain shows where we're, we're, let's say the showrunner has a lot of power, they're like, I'm ending this, you know, my story is done at the end of season five. I don't care if it still makes you money. We're done at five. Ours was like just begging to come back. Um, so, but yeah, no, it was, you know, it's like the show itself. Like there's so many parallel, so many things that were a part of the behind the scenes of this ended up on screen in some sort of way. Like just knowing when your end comes colors your journey. And so that was definitely the journey of finishing the show. We knew we had an end. And, you know, season one was very much like, um, like I always joke around and say, like, there's a lot of things introduced in season one that are like, like the Ezekiel 2517 uh, speech from Pulp Fiction that um, <laughs> Samuel Jackson does. Like, it's just some cold-blooded shit to say to a motherfucker before you pop a cap in his ass, right? <laughs> A lot of it was like, this sounds cool. I don't know what it means, but you know, it, 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 it's certainly intriguing. And, um, so when we got to season two, it's like, we have to start like nailing down what these things are. Like, what is the red forest? You know, what are, you know, what is it? The connection? What do the 12 monkeys want? And so we definitely season two put us on the track of like, we, we have to lay the groundwork here. And then when we, like I said, when we knew um, we were going to get to finish it, it was like everything we've done so far, we need to make sure that we answer for. So, yeah, it was totally unique situation. And, um, you know, we were super lucky. So, I I mean, it's great that you guys were, I think it showed that you all were such fans of what you were doing. I don't think, I think it just comes off with you loved the characters and then that comes through with what we see on screen. Mm. Um, Do you have as, I guess as a writer, but then also just going around and then watching how it came out, any particular moments that are your favorites? Either. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's certain moments that, um, and, and, and I, I, I don't mean to just talk about certain like episodes that I wrote, but they're obviously the ones that I'm, I'm most like attached to. And, you know, the, the great thing about the show is that, you know, even like in season one as a staff writer, like I got to go to set and produce, you know, my episodes. So not only did we write these things, but we were on set seeing it being shot, you know, like making, we, we were very, very protective of the show, but there's certain, there's certain things that, um, there's the emotional stuff and then there's the story stuff and like Rayleigh pulling up to the house of Cedar and Pine and that shot mirroring the shot that we had made of her standing in front of the house in sort of that red forest t- like that's just like when that happens it, it's just like I get such a kick because it's like it feels like you uh, it's such a sense of tr- like accomplishment like we um, we screened 212 and 213. So blood washed away and memory of tomorrow in a theater for some diehard fans before it aired, like the week before both aired and they played together like a movie. And it was like watching like a summer blockbuster because people were so into it, so invested. And when she pulled up to that house, 
people like shouted and lost their shit and it was <laughs> it was great um we do that at home yes. <laughs> so even if it's the 10th time that we've watched it but yeah yeah, yeah. so but i mean like you know and and that's and that's great because like you you write these things and they're like awesome ideas that come up in the room and then you write them and then you have drafts and then you go to production meetings and then by the time you end up shooting you're just like please god let this just not get fucked up you know <laughs> so you know and then by the time it airs you've been so far removed to it that it feels like fresh again so you do you know it was nice to sit and watch like you know the hannah jones moment where hannah sees you know brooke for the first time like, you know, sitting next to my wife, who's in that episode, who plays one of the spearhead uh, soldiers, and like, look over and nice. see her like, you know, tearing up and me being like, I'm, I'm okay. I'm not, you know, <laughs> um, but it, you know, it works. And, and, you know, like that moment, for example, is like being on set was like, uh, you know, you go in the, every time they go to shoot a scene, you're like, I just hope it doesn't get screwed up. Like, can we just get it close to what we want it to be? And there were certain moments like that one where it's just like, even just on set at the monitor, you just throw your hands up like, it's magic, great, I'm going home. You know, like, we're, we're, we're good. Like, this, this is going to work. And I think at that point, we knew that we were hinging so much on Hannah in terms of like, eventually being Cole's mom and stuff that like, if that didn't work, it's like back to the drawing board in a major way. And uh, so... That kind of stuff is fun. So going back to this, um, the big moment, just since you brought up and blood washed away, when you all did that first vision of the Red Forest um, in season one, Mm -hmm. was that one of those, here's a really cool thing that sounds dramatic and then we'll figure out what it means later? I think think it was a little bit of both. Like, I I think certainly, you know, uh, and and I remember because that was, it was Chris's script and and Chris had a version of some sort of like 12 monkey chant that they were going to do, you know, as they're giving Rayleigh like the green tea. And, um, And I know that when I think Travis went and he did a pass on that, and he, I think, and, I, and maybe Terry was involved. I, I don't know. I just remember the, the Travis part of it that, um, you know, it's like there's a red, you know, you're walking through a red forest, the grass is tall. And it was just like so, it was just amazing imagery. And it was like a puzzle and a riddle into itself. And so immediately we started talking about like what, what it could mean. I don't think we fully know, knew what it meant. Uh, we knew it had something to do with the witness, but also like in terms of that, the blood washed away moment of it in that moment, I think there's a lot of people like, Oh shit is cold. The witness like, mm-hmm. you know, so yes and no, you know, and that, that was a lot of things, you know, a lot of things were, we have a idea for it or like several ideas for it. And then, you know, eventually the right one showed itself. God, and that was the one you chose. <laughs> and that was the, <laughs> the one right you chose. One the one <laughs> and then, okay, so then they're like, here, you're, Sean, you're going to write this episode. Mm-hmm. No pressure. It's the big dramatic um, Cassie and Cole meeting at the house. And meanwhile, everyone's dying a Titan. Right. Go write it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, sex and violence, just smashing together <laughs> always works. Um, no, no, like, like that, we were deep into, uh, we were deep in a production on that one. And, and, 
you know, Blood Washed Away was one that, like, be perfectly honest, like, like, came pretty easy. It's just that when you know when you're building something, you have such anticipation of, like, I can't wait to write Cassie being in front of the house, or I can't wait to write, you know, this moment. So that, it, it was it was fairly easy the first draft. But, you know, whenever those things, you know, having your two main characters, you know, quote unquote, fall in love or get together for the first time, it, it's, it, it's shark jump territory. And so you have to be very, very um, careful in terms of how you play those moments. They could be cheesy. They could, you know, not work on many levels. So there, I, I had a draft of that scene and I felt pretty good, but I know Terry was like very much, um, he's like, we have to nail this. If we fuck this up, we ruin the show, basically. Um, so there was, a, there was a Sunday in Toronto where Terry and I sat at the table in his hotel room and basically acted the scene out together <laughs> to, to get it right. And I, I'm sure like, you know, the people in the room next door were like, oh, that's sweet. That's what that, you know, but... But it was like we, 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 we had to like go over it and again and we, we, we rewrote it and it's great and then read it out loud again. It's like, no. And, you know, and went back to the drawing board many times. It was several hours of like, you know, you know why I'm here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so who played which character? Uh, good question. I, 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 I think he was definitely Cassie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we, I think I think we alternated, and, and it's one of those, you know, it's one of those situations where that, you know, what, what makes those conversations tough is they're not always from like one person's point of view. Like that's, you know, it's that's def that conversation is all about a balance, and um, you know, you have to kind of vet those vet those well, and and it was, you know, it was always a big risk to have. Cole and Cassie come together like you know there's the whole like TV saying it's like you know once you know Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepard got together on Moonlighting the show fell apart like we didn't want to lose that tension between those two characters yet we decided this is where the story is going to go um, so yeah it was it was tough but I think it worked ah uh, yeah <laughs> it was pretty awesome. But wait, so that's that is a thing. That so when audiences say they're worried about the the um, moonlighting thing, that uh, really is a thing that you guys all worry about. I, I yeah, I, I think so. I mean like, you know, sometimes that tension really drives, you know, characters and, and tension makes, you know, for for interesting, you know, relationships. And there's kind of stakes with that. And when people together are together and they're happy, it's kind of like, what's the problem, you know? And, uh, and then the next thing you have to do is tear them apart. And that sucks, you know, uh, you know, for the audience, like, you know, especially if like one character's to blame, some of the audience like doesn't like that character anymore. And it, it, it can get sticky if you don't, um, if you don't sort of treat it like, you know, the right way. And, and like I said, going back to the question about like, you know, complex scenarios and, and also having intimate dialogue, it's, you know, there was always the stakes in that world to sort of, it made those scenes have greater meaning than just, I like you, you like me, you know, <laughs> uh, that kind of stuff. Was that the first draft? <laughs> yeah, was, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was pretty pedestrian. No, I mean, it was, it was tough because like, you know, 
for example, you know, Cole, in Cassie's point of view, Cole did a pretty shitty thing. He like basically abandoned her while she was, you know, comatose, right? And, you know, and in his mind, he's like, I did you the best favor. You're the only person in this world that I've been tasked with saving that I actually care about other than, you know, Ramsey, of course. Um, and so in my smallest way, I've saved you. Like, you're going to live here in the 50s and you'll die before the plague ever happens. And that's the small little victory that I can live with. So, you know, it was, you know, juggling the um, understanding and the anger and the bitterness and the longing and, you know, all that good stuff. Luckily, Terry and I are terrific actors, so. Uh, <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> um, that's great. That is actually, that is my favorite scene. That is really cool to get to hear how you guys all put it together. Um cool. Going back really quickly, another thing in season one that as we rewatch jumps mm-hmm. out at us, other than sort of the climb the steps, ring the bell, and all these kind of fun Easter eggs, um, is the episode you wrote, The Keys, mm-hmm. and um, Cassie asking Cole about envisioning what will happen to him when he's quote unquote erased, even yeah. though it's not quite the erased that we will come to understand later on in the right. show. Yeah. And you have sort of this, it's kind of the first, and you know, I understand it's also an homage to the movie with like picturing the keys as this place that you can get away, uh-huh. um, sort of this vision of somewhere you could be happy. But is that something you all were thinking about in terms of the end game for the show? Cause I understand you guys were kicking around that ultimately Cole was the problem and that he'd have to be erased as early as season one. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's, in terms of the time travel puzzle of it, yeah, Cole is a big problem. It, it's a problem in a sense, even if he's not the djinn, it's a problem in that your lead character um, is ultimately going to have to die for there to be a happy ending. And so that's just inherently tough. Um, th- there's a kind of a funny thing about the whole keys thing. Um, and it, and it, 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 I've got sort of like a long-winded explanation for it, but I'll tell it is that... Um, I had totally forgotten the keys reference in the movie. Um, I saw the movie when it came in the theaters and I watched it again before I went and worked on the show. But, you know, the, the movie's the movie and our show's the show. And, and we did homages at, at periodic times, but like you'd also sort of forget, you know, certain things. So for me, um, very early on in season one, before we knew that Cole was going to meet Ramsey in the orphanage when they're kids, right? Um, we started talking about like, well, how did Cole and Ramsey meet, right? And I had pitched this thing in the room, and uh, Terry's like, "That's cool. You should you should write that scene." And I don't think it was because they ultimately wanted to do it. I think it was it was early on in the scene, and he wanted early on in the season, and he wanted everyone to sort of write a scene that they pitched to sort of get a sense of their process and writing style and so on and so forth. So the scene I had envisioned was um, it was in the, um, it was sort of in the, the last days, the last whimper of humanity during the plague. And you had a, a young Cole, it's just a kid who's standing in a line of sick people waiting to go into like this medical triage. Right. And Cole's not sick, of course, cause he's, cause he's immune, 
but he's a kid, he's hungry, he has no one, and he's just needs somewhere to go, right? And so he's standing amongst all these people that are basically just waiting to die because he's there's nowhere else for him. And so the triage line was like heading towards this, uh, you know, these tents and stuff. And there were doctors and there were soldiers with machine guns, but all of them were sick. And the soldiers were super agitated and one was spitting up blood onto the ground. And this was just a dire, dire scene. And all of a sudden, this little Puerto Rican kid starts, you know, walking down the line and he's checking people out. And he's obviously not sick because he's young Ramsey. And he comes across <laughs> little Cole and he's like, Hey, you, what are you doing here? You're not sick. Like, this is for dead people. Like, what are, what are you doing? And Cole's like, you know, Ramsey's a little older. He's very animated and, 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 and Cole's a little intimidated. And Ramsey's like, you, you should come with me. Like, like I, I found like all the cool stuff. And he opens up, uh, his backpack and he's got like a gun and junk food and like a hustler <laughs> magazine, right? And he's like, what would like a preteen kid do if he had the lay of the land? He'd go collect a bunch of shit that he wants, right? And he's like, he's like, come hang with me. Like, don't be around. You don't need these are these people are gonna die. We're good. Like, come, come, you know, be my friend, essentially. And, you know, young Cole looks at these line of people and the agitated guards and stuff, and he leaves with Ramsey. Ramsey throws his arm around him. And it's like, we're, we're going we're gonna to be good. And as Ramsey's leading him away, the guard basically breaks and starts mowing people down in the line. And so Cole would have died there with all these other people had he not been sort of saved by Ramsey. Now, that was just kind of like a scene that I thought was, was, you know, was kind of cool or whatever. But I liked the idea of Cole being a kid whose notion of the world didn't come from TV, didn't come from the internet. It came from like just finding scraps of shit left over in the apocalypse, right? And that one day on a particular dire event or whatever that he found this magazine or something with these uh, pictures of Florida in it and it looks warm and beautiful and people are alive and him thinking like this is his idea of paradise. So... I was going to call the episode Florida. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I went in, because I totally forgot about the keys thing. And so I went in to talk to, Ter uh, to <laughs> Natalie and Travis. And I'm like, here's my thing. You know, he, he'd seen this as a kid. And this is something he held on to. It was like his version of paradise, whatever. And Travis was like, that's cool. Maybe we'll just call it the keys like the movie. <laughs> I was just like, oh, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> So, so yeah, I like, you know, I came from like an organic original thing and eventually ended up back at the movie. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, and, and, but for me, it was like an ironic sort of thing because Florida's crazy. Like, whose idea of paradise is Florida? You know? And like so, my, 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 my four year olds, but yeah. Yeah, yeah <laughs> <Right>. exactly. And <laughs> that's, you know, Cole was only a little older, you know? <laughs> right. Disneyland, no. Disney World's there. Let's go. You, know. yeah, you well, have to be like under 10 or over 70. That's yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's the over under. Yeah. Um, and well, and the thing is, is even, even in how it eventually took shape, mm -hmm. that one story makes you realize all those things, right? Like how different it's like the shorthand for you sit back and you're in the audience and you're like, 
man, his vision of anything good came yeah. from a page in a magazine and it's Flor- it's Florida. Yeah. And he's like, there's not even a beach really. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it, it was so interesting because like, um, I remember after season one, I, I was just in like a general meeting for something with some production. It might've been Marvel or something like that. And the exec, exec had been a 12 Monkeys fan. And, um, you know, I was like, and I think I was talking about like, yeah, we're, we're, we're about to do season two or seven or three, whatever it was. And I'm like, you know, we're very excited. And she said quite simply, yeah, you know, yeah, you, you guys have to finish because Cole has to make it to the keys. And it was just like, it was so like touching that it was just such a definitive thing for someone. Like they knew it's like, yeah, Cole's got to make it to the keys. Like he deserves this, <laughs> you know, um, that was sweet. Ah, and then you, and then when you all conceived of the end, mm. so it was because it's interesting, like thinking about it in season four, you get it as like almost this image of the afterlife, mm-hmm. and then you all do this fake out where we think it's oh, it's just when he does his like it's a beautiful scene, but it's also the saddest proposal in the history of the world because <laughs> it's like, do you want to be engaged for the next few hours before I get a race? Yeah. <laughs> It's a short honeymoon. <laughs> oh, man. Um, and then, so when you all were then taking sort of that idea that you were just talking about in season one, mm-hmm. and then how do you use it for the most impact in season four? Uh, I, you know, it was funny, like, you know, and like, what happens is like, you, you, you know, you're writing something and then you're, you're writing to like a goal. Let's say like, yeah, Cole's going to make it to the keys or, you know, Hannah is going to be Cole's mom or Olivia is the real, you know, the second witness or whatever. And you, you get so stuck in those. And over time, those things start to change. Like they become less exciting when you first present them. And there were, you know, there were discussions like, you know, Ramsey's son's the witness, like a lot of things that were like at one point semi set in stone that as you evolve, as the story evolves in the writer's room, you're like, you get to it and you're like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're, we're going to do something else. So, you know, things like, you know, the wedding were like just dangerous from like a storytelling standpoint, because like, you don't want that to be cheesy. You know what I mean? Like that has to be like bittersweet. Like they, you know, they couldn't just, hey, you know, we're going to take the splinter suits we're going to splinter to Tahiti of 1987. We're going to hang out there for a couple months. We're going to get our honeymoon on. And then we're going to come back and you're like, you can't do, you have to be respectful of the limitations and not completely take, you know, the stakes away from it. And I think, yes. It, and I remember we were joking around in, in the room. And um, at one point for, for a really long time, and this was a huge debate, who was going to be on the beach waiting for Cole? And at one point, it was going to be Jones. Um, and it was like, should it be Jones or should it be Jennifer? And it was like this this back and forth of like, and, and, and you know, and I think I blurted out like, oh, how great would it be? Like, you know, Cole suddenly appears on this beach and he sees the sand and he sees the water and he turns to Jones and he's like, is this, am I dead? Is this heaven? And Jones taking a drag of her cigarette going... <laughs> No, it's the keys and like just like <laughs> flicking it on the beach, you know. Um, still in a trench coat. Yeah, still in a trench coat. Like, no, it's a shithole. Like, it's not heaven at all. Um, so we're, we're constantly like, you know, wh- how do we circumvent the expectations, not only that the audience is going to have, 
but that we have as people as like sort of the first viewers, you know? Um, yeah. I think Jennifer ended up being such the right choice there. And it's just like you said earlier, cause she's just a license to do whatever. Yeah. And she's just sitting there like having her drink, hanging out. Like just, and, yeah. right. It's like, she's telling the audience as much as Cole that it's not heaven. Cause you're sitting there and you're like, wait, are we like in some sort of crazy afterlife? Scenario? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it and it, like those things, you know, it it is it ends up being the right choice, and sometimes it's the right choice because it comes right after, or not right after, but shortly after a very long Cole and Jones scene. So it's like if you have that good that goodbye between Cole and Jones in the uh, the temporal facility when she dies and he gets in the machine, and a few minutes later suddenly they're talking again on the beach, it it sort of robs it of emotionally. So sometimes like there's that whole you know sometimes scenes end up being a certain way because you don't want to be repetitive you know um yeah yeah and jennifer would be like the kooky one that knows that's happening but like you said for the impact he never actually sees jones again even yeah. in that blog yeah um so they're one of the i i find as a viewer fun things about this show is the constant one versus the many mm-hmm. um, kind of ringer that you all put all the characters through, but you're also, you know, putting the audience through it. Yeah. Um, and in some ways it almost seems, I don't know if this is sort of a, the right take or not, but you know, in the pilot you mm-hmm. have Cassie and Cole arguing sort of one versus 7 billion. And uh-huh. then you take it. Every, almost every character has to face almost their own kind of worst nightmare scenario of that. Yeah. Uh, and then at the end, you have Ethan telling Jones, save the one. And the audience is like probably like fist pumping when we figure out what that means. But uh-huh. really, that's just another version of the one versus the many, right? <laughs> You've yeah. been playing with sort of the whole series. Was there one particular one versus the many moral dilemma that caused sort of the biggest debate in the writer's room? Oh, geez. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, the every day. Uh, <laughs> no, and, and it was, it, you know, the, the situation was so great about, you know, working on the show is that, you know, those scenarios would come up all the time. And as the sort of mythology got more and more complex, so did the answer, you know, and, you know, it, it, it's sort of easy for Cole in, in a lot of ways in season one, cause he's like, he's a guy who feels guilt, right? And he's a guy who, um, he, he basically like, I need to redeem my soul by sacrificing my life, right? And so the person he's essentially mourning is who he was or could have been, right? And I would argue that, yes, the show in many ways is about the one versus many, but to me, it's more about like, what are we willing to do for the people we love? And that, you know, really just uh, across the, it applies to Jones. It applies to Deacon. It applies to Jennifer. It applies to Cassie eventually. Um, and I think the one that Cole loves is in, in, in the first season, isn't just Ramsey, but it's like who he was supposed to be and who he, you know, because of the terrible things he had to do, you know, he's willing to make, you know, that ultimate sacrifice to save someone. But, you know, like Ramsey's story you know, for example, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a dad, I have two kids, Terry's a dad, like, there were a few of us, you know, Richard Robbins uh, is a dad. Um, and then there was other people on our staff who don't have kids, and we would have these 
huge fundamental issues where it was like, what do you mean you're going to burn the world to save your kid? You're an asshole. And I'm like, fuck that. I'm going to burn the world to save my kid. <laughs> you know? So it's, you know, it, it really is, it, there really were complex things and it really depends on your, your point of view and, and where you sort of come from in life. Uh, a lot of times, like I never vilified Ramsey for the things he did. Like there's huge parts of me. Like I get Ramsey completely, you know? And, um, and then that was always important, I think, is that your, your villains just can't be arch. They can't just be bad for like arbitrary reasons or because it's convenient. Like, you know, I love Livia. Like I was so, you know, happy to do in our last season, her sort of backstory. Like that was, you know, it's exciting to do medieval and like, you know, big set pieces and things like that. But that was the one I was like most pumped to do because. It, it's a character we love and it's a character we fought for. Like there were a lot of voices who were like, Olivia can't end up being the big bad of the show. And we're like, why the fuck not? She's a great character, a great actress. And we want to do tremendous, you know, we, we know we could do great things with her and, and the story sort of fits. And, you know, it was something that it wasn't uh, a huge fight, but definitely something we had to fight for. What? Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it, <laughs> Give me names. <laughs> no, 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 no. no like, wow. Like, no, and it was like, you know, and, and I think I think what it is is just I think people had people had doubts, you know, and you talk about the witness as being like this um uh you know a dark, very arch, like, you know, the basically the grim reaper of time or whatever. And like when we got into season three, like, wouldn't it be awesome? If you found out who the witness, who you think the witness is, and you really liked him, and then Olivia ends up being the witness. Like, <laughs> and so that was like, done. Let's do that. Let's let's turn this thing on its head. Um, and so, yeah. Well, and I guess actually, you know, if you're thinking about it, I mean, it, I guess it's easy for us to say now that we're at the end and we know how amazing that story was. But it, you guys did play with sort of the structure and that we don't realize – who the antagonist is and we're kind of watching her become that mm -hmm. while we're watching our heroes fight her. And you're, so you're talking about Cassie, right? <laughs> oh no, you <laughs> didn't. <laughs> you already dropped that second <laughs> witness know. thing. I caught it. <laughs> oh yes. Oh man, this is I've been gearing up for this all day. <laughs> um should we get into it? Should we is it Red Forest time? Wait, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> whatever you guys want. All right, wait. So before we before yeah. we do that, just because I the one thing I don't want to give short shrift because I feel like season three came out like in one weekend, and so it was all together. And yeah, your and you wrote the episode that just blew. I remember my husband and I sitting there, and we got to the end of Thief, mm -hmm. and we were like, "How the hell did they make us number one care about?" The freaking witness so much. <laughs> and number two is Gaius Beltar. Like, <laughs> it, yeah, it was it was so funny. Um uh oh, and then there's there's a Mayans component to this. So let me uh let me get to that after we talk about the twelve monkeys part of it. But um uh yeah, I mean what it was is we, we kinda knew well, we knew that um you know in season three, the witness obviously was their kid, right? And we didn't want him to, we didn't want to make him just like this arch, like, like we, we wanted him to be sympathetic. And very early on 
in season three, Terry's like, when we get to the witness thing, you, you're, you want to do that one, right? I'm like, yeah, I, I'm in. Um, so I had like this, I was sick and I had this weird fever dream about the witness and this woman that he fell in love with. And like, I woke up in the middle of the night and I took my, my notes thing on my phone and I just wrote a bunch of stuff, you know, and I, at the top I wrote like, you know, he's a demon, he's the demon. And, but this is about like, you know, the way he sees himself, blah, blah, blah. And so I came in to the office, like the next, it was in the next day or something. And I just sort of pitched like the rough strokes of it to the room. Right. And I was like, you know, it's, he does this and she's a thief and, you know, we think it's called thief because she's a thief, but it's really about time is the thief, right? Mm-hmm. And that was sort of like the the you know the main sort of thing I was trying to convey in there. And it was very early on, and it was like it was one of those like you know times when you pitch in the room where afterwards people were like, yeah, okay, cool, you know. And and then, but it was like months went by because we were so early in the season, and we had talked. Terry and I, when after season two, we didn't know we were coming back and we were having those semi-sad conversations about what if, you know, and it was like when we reveal who the witness is, we should just be in his point of view and we'll just do a thing where it's like you're following our story and then you just cut to the point of view of this new character and that was very exciting, you know, it was just like that's awesome, that's what, that's totally what we'll do and you know, whatever. And so that was always the plan. So it was always just sort of in my mind that we are going to just tell this basically a little love story and find out why he chooses to become the witness, even though he doesn't want to be. And I was actually, I ended up, uh, I produced all the stuff we did in Czech Republic for seasons three and season four. So I had gone scouting there for like 10 days before it was like in it's just before Christmas, like Prague turns into like Christmas town uh, around the holidays. So it's freezing cold, but every, you know, corner has like big Christmas markets and stuff like that. But I hadn't been to Europe in a long time and I was super jet lagged. So we spent all day in a van driving around looking at different locations and, and I was still writing the script. So a lot of the things were like, you know, I would find a cool location and I'd call Terry back and like, we should shoot here. And we could do X, Y, and Z here. But I was writing the script. And I was like, just exhausted. Like, you know, I wanted to go to sleep at six o'clock. Like, jet lag just kicked my ass. So it was, it was, it was super hard script to write because at the same time, we could only afford to shoot so much of that story in the Czech Republic. We had to shoot some of it on our sets, which means some of the story had to take place, you know, with Jones and, and, I just felt like as a writer, you wanted to stay in Ethan's story. And so the scenes with like Jones and Deacons and Cole and Cassie, like it, it was a little painful because like my instinct was like, we want to stay with this Ethan story. This is sort of working. So we, the script ended up being sort of long. It had what we needed to have in terms of like the Ethan and Eliza story, but it had a lot more Cole and Cassie and Jones and Jennifer and all that other stuff. And just because we, it was the penultimate of season three, you can't abandon your leads going up into the last episode. And I understood that even though my heart's like, I just want to tell this Ethan and Eliza story. Um, and I think what happened is the, when it got into the edit, the editor's like, 
yeah, you just don't want to cut away from them. So eventually some of the other stuff got taken out. Um, like the, the, the scene between Ethan and, uh, uh, Jones when she uncovers the machine, um, and he's there and it's in, um, it's in, I think the beginning part one. So in our last season, that scene was actually in Thief. So we shot that there and we had to cut it because like, you know, we didn't want to, we, we were long on it and we wanted to give enough time to the, to the Ethan and, and Eliza story. Um, so, so that, that, that was tough, but I think that one ultimately just kind of like, it ended up being the story it needed to be. And, and which was, which is fine by me. <laughs> yeah. That, that turned into being a brilliant callback actually, which is interesting because we knew it was filmed in season three, but I, I didn't know that it was intended to go there. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was just, we needed to, and, and it was just like, you know, it was just, I remember walking, you know, the streets of Prague at night, it's freezing cold and, and uh, being on the phone with Terry, like trying to find something to eat that wasn't like a, like a, schnitzel or something and, <laughs> and being on the phone with him he's like he's like i'm sorry but we just have to shoot more on our sets because we can't afford all these days in in prague and even though prague is cheaper than shooting in toronto it it's still you know it was still as a thing so it's like i was ended i was cutting back Ethan and eliza to add more jones and jennifer and which you know they're great characters but you know that wasn't the goal of the thing it was it was to tell Ethan's story so i think the balance ended up working out and 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 being good so in thief when you go back and watch it now what Mm. stands out to me is there's a conversation between Ethan and eliza right before she gives him the watch Mm -hmm. um where she says something to the effect of of being in the now, which sounds very similar to the conversation we get in the series fin- in the series finale between mm-hmm. Cole and Cassie. Yeah, and so when you go back and watch Thief, and you watch Cassie's scene when she's in the hospital and Ethan comes to see her, there's just a lot of parallels and sometimes I find it disturbing foreshadowing regarding Cassie um, yes. and sort of what that asking the wrong person. I, uh, no, I'm asking the right person. I have, I, I, I have, I have a, I have a great alleviating answers for all, for all those, for all your fears. Oh, um, okay. But, okay. but yeah, I know mean, so- that was, that was the thing. I mean, you know, um, you know, and I, I think I think Terry may have mentioned it to you guys that there was a line, and I think I really pushed for it in the finale of season three, where Ethan's like, "In every iteration of time I've known, you released the plague." Like it was, we definitely wanted to put Bird and Cassie with this decision. So it was all it was all very intentional. I mean, the idea that Cassie could be the witness. It's not an accident that that you're seeing it in you're seeing hints of it from you know season three when she talks to Shaw to and especially in season four when she talks to Shaw um you know those were those were all basically part of the game plan and i think I think what happened you know uh, uh, unfortunately it, it was you know it was a cool idea for Cassie to know that she has to eventually release the plague. 
But on the flip side, we didn't want to overburden her because Cassie's a strong character. And when she's overburdened, um, that pulls her away from people. And, and unfortunately, the reality was is that we sort of learned in season two is that for some reason, the audience is, was incredibly unforgiving for Cassie being a human or a strong human, you know, and which was, which was dumb. Um, but, you know, that's sort of, you know, the way it is. And so we were like, we're definitely going to put the moral choice of all this on her shoulders. Um, but that was just knowing that ahead of time that she releases the plague was, was a bit too much. But all those things were, of course, designed to get you to that moment where it's like, did she turn it off or didn't she? Um, and, and so did she? Uh, okay. So here's the thing. <laughs> for, for me, for me, the truly it is the, the right ending is the one you choose. Right. And, um, so many people would get upset when I, when I would, when I would go down the rabbit hole of why they're in the red forest. And, um, and the interesting thing I always find is that they're like, no, I like the happy ending. And for me, it's like, why isn't the red forest that you see a happy ending? Because they look pretty happy. In fact, everyone looks pretty happy. And, you know, so much of life is, you know, being on this journey and thinking very rigidly about certain things. And then it's okay to get to the end and realize you're wrong, you know? And so I never saw, I like, you know, Terry's like, cause he and Kristen have dark souls. Like, I, you know, <laughs> I don't, I actually think it's, it's, I actually think it's a very bittersweet, beautiful outcome. I mean, think about it. What is, our traditional notion of the afterlife other than our consciousness, our conscious, how do you pluralize consciousness? Our conscious nigh or whatever. Um, <laughs> I like our that. consciousness <laughs> is existing outside the confines of time, right? Like, and, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a religious person and we didn't have, you know, I don't think anybody in the room was tremendously, you know, religious. So there isn't any religious hitting message, hidden messages or anything. But um, I thought it was incredibly interesting that what if something that looks like hell on the outside, once you're in it, feels like the opposite. Um, so I don't feel like those characters are in purgatory. I feel like they're happy together forever. And that doesn't seem like an unhappy ending to me. Um, so when you have the people, like whether it be Cole or Cassie or um, Shaw or whoever, kind of presenting, or even Jones, presenting their different ideas of what they think it is, mm -hmm. that's just from their perspectives and in, in your mind, it could, this ending could have been like yeah, the reality I mean, of the Red Forest. I always thought, you know, and, and people would say like, well, it's not the Red Forest because Red Forest is the hell on earth. And I would use this analogy in the room. I would say, you know, okay, so most people nowadays have Macs, so they don't have this problem. But in the old days, I had like a PC. And um, when you get a new program for a, a, a PC, you'd, you'd go to lo load it, and it doesn't necessarily work because you have to install separate, you know, codecs or applications. Like, I need Adobe Flash Player, blah, 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 right? Um, so without that connective piece, that program is just a mess of data, right? 
And I think outside looking in, like when those, like in season two, when those puffs of the red forest appear in the forest and it's like the soldier gets put in and suddenly he's old, he's young, he's dead, he's alive and all this other stuff. To me, that was just from the outside looking in the raw data of basically any possibility existing at once, right? But once the red forest takes a hold of everything and you're sort of, you have that plugin, you have that thing that allows you to read the red forest, suddenly it works and it's beautiful and it's what it promises to be. Um, cause I don't think Shaw and I don't think Olivia and I don't all these, I don't think they're, I never saw them as being incredibly arch or that they, they're hellbent on destroying the world. I think they legitimately believe that this red forest is the answer um, to everything. Um, so and- you're saying if you run a defrag and install Adobe <laughs> Flash, then <laughs> then the red forest is awesome. If you don't do that, it, it looks it's a mess and it, it won't play. You can't edit your video. You know, um, but so yeah. I'm going, so, uh, okay, so. <laughs> You're really stressing, Tina. <laughs> well, It'll only get worse. <laughs> uh, but so, because here's the thing. Uh-huh. I, well, wait, before we get into, like, a little bit more of the philosophical, wh- one quick nitty-gritty question about that. Okay. So, we, we have the epilogue mm. where we see everyone in the new timeline. Right. Where everything was reset and things are happy. Mm-hmm. Why do we see then Jones dying and Cole having to erase himself? Is that Be, well? Here's the thing, and I, I know I know Terry's thing was like, why would time just they need to see this so they feel good about themselves? Like that is not that that, that is not the explanation. I think the ex, for me, it's the Red Forest is every iteration of every moment that exists. Right? It's endless possibilities. Time is the thing that binds things. It makes them linear. And then when you don't have time, you just, you, you have everything. So that Jones dying was an outcome of that particular timeline. But when time collapses, there's many timelines. It's in, and it's endless timelines, right? So literally it, the right ending becomes the one you choose. Like I think there's a version where, uh, Jones dies and there's a version where she's, where she's happily ever after. And, you know, kind of the, the, the thing is, is that, if Cole's the gin, which we're saying Cole's the gin, and he is a product of time travel, he can't exist anywhere unless somewhere there's time travel. So the idea that Jones created a thing that, um, that allows him to exist sort of outside of time, it's, it, that idea works better in the Red Forest than it does in a world where time travel is erased. Um, because you can't have your cake and sort of eat it too in terms of like Cole being the gin, but then also existing. Um, you know, there, there's time travel there somewhere. And I think even in the iteration where where Jones, let's say she did, like, again, again, I'm not saying anybody's wrong. I'm not saying anybody's wrong. <laughs> anybody's right. This, this conversation was actually one that we had very, you know, intensely in the room many times. And, and I always felt that, you know, how great is it that you have a show that when it ends, you pose a question that the main characters have been trying to answer all four seasons. Like suddenly in a viewer, we're all in many sort of way having the same sort of moral dilemma, you know? 
Um, I always thought that was interesting. The, you know, it's nice to button everything up and I totally, you know, the, the happy ending is, is, is totally a happy ending. Um, and the other version I think is also very interesting and it's something very compelling to talk about. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I'm going to play devil's advocate again. Okay. So, there, I put my, just so you know, sometimes it keeps me up at night thinking about <laughs> it. <laughs> because I rec, I recognize sort of my own, that's, I, the happy ending is what I want. Right. So then I'm like, okay, well, then I need to play devil's advocate against myself. Mm-hmm. So, when, I think maybe what I think is so interesting about it mm-hmm. is the reason why I think a lot of people want the happy ending and like the happy ending is because the reality like we're stuck with uh-huh. <laughs> as human beings. Yeah. Sure. Right? Is yeah. that we can't change any of that. So the message of the finale of we can't change any of that and the only thing that you do have control over is making the most of now is one of the reasons why this series finale I found was so moving, right? And, yeah. and I think stays with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, the whole moral dilemma of what Cassie's facing is something that we never have to because we don't have, as far as we like know now into the future that we can see, have it's getting at sort of the fundamental what sucks about being a human mm-hmm. <laughs> is that yeah. we die. Right. Um and so I think like allowing allowing yourself to think through this is what it, when we say this is what makes us human and it makes us love harder it's also because that's what we're stuck with. So in some ways do we also tell ourselves that because we can't change it. And so what would you do if you could change it? I mean we had somebody on here that said like I would eat Reese's peanut butter cups for breakfast I would I would totally not stop the countdown and let the red forest go. <laughs> You know, it's a totally valid comparison. Even yeah. they know it's not the wrong, you know, even though it's quote unquote, like not the right thing. Well, I don't even know, right? Because, right? right? So I, when, and when you go back and watch The Pallid Man, you know, he can be kind of compelling. Like, Yeah. No, and, and look, all those things are, it's not an accident that, you know, um, you know, Cassie's journey through season three into season four is about understanding the other side of the coin. And, um you know, and I like you know, and I I like I've I listened to you guys. I know like you're sort you're doing the rewatch thing. You're like, oh, that kind of points to the red forest. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and it, it welcome to my world of being ultra close to the material. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, it's it, look, I you know I, I say that you know I'm my investment in 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 this is is you know as a writer it's a lot of the times it's you know from an intellectual standpoint like what are the ideas that are trying to convey here and so there's something that's really attractive about saying it's in the red forest that is um very intellectually satisfying and there's also things about saying no it's it's everything was reset and um and you know jones was able to you know, pluck coal at a time and, and put him here. That's very satisfying emotionally. Um, again, there is no right answer to this. <laughs> um, this I, I, I think what for me, like, you know, and, and I, I certainly realized that in some ways I've become sort of the bad guy in this, but it, it really is is because I, I love talking about that. 
And I thought if no one beats the drum for the Red Forest, that's a sad thing because it's a cool idea that I think we talked about. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting though. I could, I mean, I could almost buy or almost would buy the entire series being in the Red Forest more than I would say post countdown. Well, technically it is. Because the red forest consumes them at the end. <laughs> oh my god! We walk into it every time. And all those no, timelines are in the red forest, and all the iterations. I mean, it really does like sew up any loose ends. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever didn't work is just like oh, red forest. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I think if you're going to put it on two sides of it, uh-huh. I I think I and you raised a really interesting point that I. Probably like, about how coal can continue to exist, and that's sort of the on the one column, and then on the other side is sort of the why did we have to, you know, that granted we never knew what it would look like, um, and all we were going off of were were people's faith in something that they were striving for, but mm-hmm. they didn't know what it would be. So now we're making up a bunch of rules about what it would be, and that's sort of in the other column. But I think they're, I mean. I, come out of this conversation to start like frankly sean pretty disturbed <laughs> well again she was again. pretty disturbed when she came in too <laughs> no it, but it's again it's you could literally see it both ways and and, and both ways would be right um so you know it, it it literally is like the you know when we wrote, you know, the right ending is the one you choose, we meant it. <laughs> I don't believe you, Sean. Um, but, you know, I like... I, the reason that, like, I'm okay, I get what you're saying, absolutely, about Cole not existing. And, and I understand what you're saying on the other side, too. And I, I could theoretically accept either version. But the reason that I'm okay with Cole's existing, even though, like, that's probably a logical fallacy to some degree, is I feel like you guys earned that when you made time to some degree sentient. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, the interesting sort of thing is, like, you know, like, going back to, like, Lullaby and, you know, that originally sort of posed the question is, like, well, is time sentient or is, was it a glitch of the machine, right? Mm -hmm. And, um... And like that, that is like, that's me. I love like, I'm going to leave you hanging. You tell me what you want to think, <laughs> you know? And there was no specific answer to that at the time. But as the series sort of evolved and we did, you know, fully commit to Hannah being his mom, the reason that day keeps resetting is because neither of them can die. Because Cole can't, because Cole's the djinn. Cole can't die until he helps save Hannah. Hannah can't die until she has coal. So that time's just like, nope, got to do it again. Nope, got to do it again until you get the right thing that fits. Because that whole thing, if Hannah doesn't come out alive, then the gin is broken and the gin can't be broken. So, um, because its loop is the only thing that keeps it in con. In exactly, the- exactly, and and existing and to start. Cole can't exist unless Hannah exists. Hannah can't exist unless Cole exists. Which is interesting because it's originally framed as that entire episode being about Jones. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. my god, you just made my brain hurt. So we we had thought that the whole thing was because Jones would have invented time travel, but yeah. that's not actually the reason well, why that's, it kept resetting. That's part of the gin. Like like the the loop isn't a clean loop. Right? right, it's a loop with a loop in it, with a loop in it, and it's like 
We, our poor writer's assistant, uh, Sarah, once tried to illustrate what the loop looks like. And it basically looks just like a crazy, etchy sketch of nothingness. Like, <laughs> like if you think the word of the witness looks complicated, that's like the cliff notes of time um, in our show because uh, the, the actuality of all the things that need to sort of fit together to, is pretty mind-boggling. Um, but yes, Jones having created, so Joan doesn't create time travel, then it doesn't, you know, it doesn't exist. But, you know, the, I think the big takeaway from that is that, you know, it's, it's the Jones, it's the Cole Hannah dynamic. Wow. That's going to be a fun one to get to. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're not I, at all stressed about Lullaby. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I know that you only have um, a little bit more time. And I one thing going back and watching both Thief and Demons mm. is that they have really important moments for sort of Deacon's character development um, and then also sort of Deacon and Jennifer's friendship. Uh-huh. And so I didn't I didn't want time to run out before you had a chance to tell us a little bit about that, whether it's Deacon I got plenty kind of-, of time. So go ahead. We're, we're good. But um- – so the the Deacon and Jennifer thing, I mean, you know, there there is like that base lame writer's instinct to be like, well, what would happen if Jennifer and Deacon hooked up? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and it's, you know, but I, I think, and certainly those things got talked about, but the more we sort of got into it and looked at the relationship, they're friends. And it's a relationship that doesn't have isn't marred by any sort of like sexual tension. They have like a shared history, a shared culture in, you know, 80s crap. And, uh, you know, in that they, um, it's a, it's a legit friendship and they're both outsiders who were largely unwanted by this group and then found a family within it. And so, you know, ultimately, you know, the story is about family, not just literally because of the, the Cole Jones and, and Hannah dynamic, but it's about, you know, brothers from other mothers in terms of like Cole and Ramsey. And it's about, you know, Jennifer finding a home, you know, finding people who love her and accept her for who she is, specifically because of her weirdness and what makes her unique. And, um, and then bringing in Deacon. So I think they're, they're two people who sort of bonded over this notion of they're, they're outsiders and they, they found this weird little time travel claim. Um, does that answer the question? Yeah. Well, and, but in some ways, or I guess actually mm-hmm. in Demons, you write like the last, sort of the culmination of Deacon's arc uh-huh. and the last version of him that the audience gets to see. Right. And and so what was the sort of, I guess what I was interested in is what was important to you in terms of, okay, like this is Deacon's, you know, right before his head, things quote, come to a head. Um, yeah. That is sort of like the, the culmination of his arc because everything we see after, I mean, we do get him back, but it's not, it's not that same Deacon who's been through everything. Yeah. Um, well, the deacon that is beheaded is the deacon that knows it's coming. Right. Right. So, and I, and I heard you guys in talking to Terry, and he was like the Eklund thing, which I, I think I can answer if, if, you, if you need answers. Oh, do but, it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, like, the, I think the thing with deacon was that 
you know, I mean, for one, you know, he was a major character in, in the show. And, um, you know, you, you want to honor the death of people who are beloved to you, right? So, you know, of course, those scenes are going to be, you know, emotional. And, you know, he's a character who resonated with people. And you, you have to give them that beautiful death. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, to say it is the culmination of his character to go from a guy who was like this, you know, bloodthirsty, sociopathic scab king to a guy who would dedicate a good portion of his adult life to then um, being a part of these people and helping them when it didn't benefit him at all. He had a much better life. Aside from like a cool, like some, you know, vacations in different time periods, he, he hit him much better as a scab king. <laughs> you know, <laughs> nobody shot him. Nobody, you know. So I think, uh, you know, I, I think it is, it is, it's as simple as it's, it's, you know, his final moment. He's gotten to the point where, you know, he loves these people and he realized he needed them and is willing to, and is, is just saying, you know, I, I accept this and I'll do it again, which he knows he's going to have to um, in, in a certain way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he became aware of his alternate timeline, which we had not seen anyone else do yet. They only remembered the thing, you know, that they had done. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you have a thought about that. Yeah, about I mean, Jones coming back and so, not remembering. So Edwin, basically, like the the temporal shift that happens in 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 primary, which is a, is an interesting story into itself. Um, so when they burn the virus in episode two hundred two, and it does that temporal shift, and suddenly Eklund is there, right? Um, what the interesting thing about just behind the scenes of the show is that we got done with season one. And one of the big criticisms of the show was that it was too complicated. And it's too complicated, it's too twisty turning, you have to pay too much attention. And that's the show we wanted to write. And that's the show that we were naturally as just we're creatively gravitating towards, right? But there was some desire on certain levels to have the show be a little bit more like what's Cole and Cassie's time travel adventure of the week. Um, and it's at a time when TV was really transitioning from like procedural stuff on networks to like heavily serialized things on cable. And we were definitely going for a serialized thing. Nobody wanted to write time travel adventure of the week, even though we had in some respects time travel adventure of the week, but they all fit into the mythology. They were never just standalone. Like, where are we going this week, Cassie? You know, it, it was never <laughs> that. And so, <clears throat> but we, we, there without sort of, naming names there were some entities that came in in season two who felt there was a mandate to make the show more like star trek let's say like each episode's its own standalone thing and it's not so bogged down by serialized mythology that was a bummer to us um and terry you know Ev you know natalie left to go do another show Terry and Travis were showrunners and they, you know, they took that to heart. Like, we can't make this too complicated, even though we want to. And so, um, so they did the, they wrote the premiere episode, Studio Network loved it. And then I was writing the second one and we wanted to do this temporal shift. And it was like, um, it's going to be too complicated. It's going to be too confusing. Um, the audience doesn't get time travel. 
and we're like, but it's cool. And it sets <laughs> it, you know, it, it, was, it was literally like that. And, you know, and, but there were certain voices that were felt that they were sent to our room to like, be like, no, it's too timey wimey or whatever. So at a point we sort of caved, the temporal shift came out and we sent in our story document to the studio network without the temporal shift in it. And so we get on our notes call um, and it's Terry and Travis and me. And I think Richard Robbins probably was on, in on that call. And, um, and this is not Richard Robbins who I'm talking about. Uh, love Richard Robbins. Um, and, uh, and so the studio network, they're like, you know, we get to this point when they're about to burn the thing and we just wish something big happened here. And we're like, well, how about this? How about they burn it and it shifts time and, and suddenly Ecl Jones is a boyfriend and they're like, <laughs> we love that, do that. And from that moment on, I will tell you this, like, we were just like, fuck it, we're going to do whatever we want, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and that was, that was like a, that was a beautiful moment because we were like, trust our gut, go with what we want to do, you know, we'll find the right audience for this and they'll catch up. And um, so that's the story behind the temporal shift. Um, but what it does is it does happen in sort of offsets, you know, sort of several timelines. Now, like the thing is, is that Cole is a, is a time traveler. He has the injections. So the injections allow him to sort of exist out of time in a certain sense, right? Mm -hmm. So um, if Cole were to witness a change in time, he would see – for example, like a deacon who was unaware that he will eventually be the hero that saves the day. And then if he were to go back and inform deacon of that and deacon were to make that choice, time would shift, but Cole as an outsider would see the difference. And then he would then go to back to the time period and be in contact with a deacon who knows he's going to save the day. So um, the characters who had injections were aware of what came, what their original, um, timeline was and then and things shifted around them that was new to them right right so that's why jones didn't know echo was like you're not part of my timeline um and so uh so for the deacon thing the first iteration of time deacon wasn't in on this right, right. and then they and then jennifer went back with the thing paradox made that change to time and then the deacon became the guy who saves the day. Um, it was really in season two when, he, when we introduced the injections and many of our characters having injections so they could collectively be aware of the differences that we allowed those kind of like hanging chads of alternate timeline, if that makes sense. Um, Just to bring it back to Florida. To Florida. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It all ends in Florida. <laughs> Where everyone wants to be. Uh, um, got it. Beep. Can you sleep? This is the one, That's the one that keeps you up at night. Do you feel like you can sleep better now? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm okay. I just, I wanted to understand, you know, how, because we see even in the, you know, even in the epilogue, certain people start to remember. We had just never seen it that quickly. Yes. And it's also a discussion that we end up having. One of our friends has posed you know, what happened in reality? Like, do we have different versions of Cassie running around if she 
really did start doing these other things that she now can't remember or is like one timeline eliminated in favor of the other and we just keep our memories. Yeah, I think some timelines would be uh, eliminated unless, of course, you're in the Red Forest and then many timelines. But an interesting thing, and I, I, uh, this will be the last, I could go on for hours and hours, but the <laughs> one the one thing I will leave is that the end of the Red Forest thing, you're walking through Red Forest, grass tall, blah, 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 blah. The last thing is like a memory of tomorrow. And those people who start to remember something that hasn't happened yet, that is a memory of tomorrow. Um, God damn it. No, it's just an episode <laughs> title. You stop. No, it's, it's not. said a thousand times. I've got a poster that says you're walking through the red forest, blah, 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 like a memory of tomorrow. Um Oh, it's even something you do to the audience, right? Like we see all these visions in season one mm. and whether it's like the glass of milk breaking or Cassie's visions of the forest. And then when, and then when we see it actually happen, we have the memory of something that, right? Even as the audience. Yeah. Uh, that just, that just didn't help at all. You know what's going to happen? You're going to finish the rewatch and you're going to be like, yeah, damn. They're in the red forest, and then you're gonna watch it again. You're like, nope, they're not in the red forest. <laughs> and then, and then, can we bring you and Terry back for like the final throwdown? <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, Smash Brothers. Nice. Oh yeah, <laughs> it gets contentious. Trust me. Ah, <laughs> oh, so I feel like I feel like people need to hear that. Um, I mean, it's interesting because as you were telling that story about whether the show is quote like too complicated. Mm-hmm. And sort of the changing landscape of TV, it's almost as if you guys created the perfect bin show mm-hmm. before that was a thing. Mm. You know? And now I don't I mean, I don't know how closely you guys are following the like pictures of, of just like piles of tissues that people post on Twitter <laughs> when they finish the finale, which is now a thing. Yeah. <laughs> to like I mean, post your But I mean, I'm curious as like the show goes on and lives this life in binge TV. Like uh-huh. it is the most satisfying binge watch ever. That's I mean, that's great. And and honestly it was like it, it, like personally have sort of mixed feelings because it was kind of nice when um, there was more of a communal thing when we were week to week that like when it came on and you'd be on Twitter and like you'd watch people react to things and they'd freak out, you know, and people had that sort of week to to digest things. Um, That, that was a new thing. And I think when they, when they aired it all over like the weekends, which, you know, what was interesting, it was so much to take in. I mean, as a person who wrote, you know, wrote on the show, I'm watching it. I'm exhausted, you know, like watching it and, you know, three episodes in a block and then four episodes in a block and then three. It was it was tough. Um, so I think, you know, I think like in the binging world of it, like you could do if you did like one to two a day is pretty is pretty good. You know, because you got to give your brain a little chance to rest because it gets a little mucky, you know. (laughs) But you'll remember, but you'll remember, right, when in season three, when Jennifer says, climbs the step, ring the bell, you have a much higher likelihood of remembering that she said that in season one. Oh, yeah, no, totally. Yeah, yeah. Unless you were keeping like a spreadsheet at home. (laughs) (laughs) 
We, we do ask a lot of the Stop audience. Stop creeping on me. <laughs> you don't uh, know. It's, it's like, like my own mother bailed. She's like, I can't follow it. So I'm, no. like, I, I'm like, I get it. You know, she was, she was like, uh, she's like, yeah, it's really confusing because this happened and this happened. I'm like, did you miss one in between? I'm like, well, it was on the DVR. Maybe I erased it. It's like, oh, God, just stop. Quit. <laughs> don't. <laughs> I don't need the aggravation of, you know, trying to explain something when you've, like, missed an episode in between. It's like, might as well just give up. <laughs> See, she likes the episodic. She watches the procedure. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, it's not a show you can watch. You can get up and go to the bathroom. <laughs> in the middle yeah. of, you know. Like the murder isn't solved in 43 minutes. Yeah, right? yeah. I have to say, though, as a, as a very serious, like, television watcher, mm. I, I find... I like, did you, you just made that a thing. Is that what we are? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's my new job title. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, I, but I find it offensive that networks, you know, don't think there's that level that, of complexity that can be handled. And maybe, unfortunately, it is just general audiences you know, because over a long time, you have the television referred to as, like, the boob tube, or it's going to yeah. rot your brain. Yeah. But I'm thinking in contextually, you know, like, a larger scale, like, you don't have books that have chapters that are standalone, you know what I mean? And, and yeah. that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So, it, I think that we have the opportunity for this medium to evolve, and I wish they would get on board with that. Yeah, and, and you know, and I think right now is is that you know with a lot of the networks largely being more procedural that you know they're filling that audience but then the audience who does want to get invested in something like a novel has so much content to see so you know there's just you know there's gonna there's gonna be people who don't want to pick up a book and you know read a thousand pages of something you know and then there's people who will and I think there's always going to be a little bit for both you know, absolutely. You know, yeah. And, don't get me wrong. I watch yeah. some episodic television. I will play, you know, Thirty Rock in the background of my life for days at a time. But yeah, I, I mean, I, just, it fills I, a different need. Yeah, I know no, totally. And I don't, I don't think there's any procedural stuff I watch. But mm -hmm. you know, that's just me. Like, I want to, I want a novel. That's what it take. Take me away. Tell me a great story and stick the landing and pull it all together. And I will give you the slow clap afterwards and say, thank you very much. <laughs> you know, um, you know, that's what I want, but everybody's different, you know? Yeah. Um, so one, but we want to hear about Mayans MC, but the one thing quickly, um, <laughs> because you wrote just because of demons, I feel like that was where all the like, primary oh, yeah. army of the 12 monkeys, like sure. mythology. So just really quickly was, beyond what we saw on screen or just kind of fleshing that a little bit because I, I suspect maybe you guys had sort of a wider story there. Yeah, I mean, there's a, I think the deleted, there's a deleted scene on the, um, the Blu-ray for season four that we shot, which was Andrus and there's actually a little thing I got to direct. Um, I'm probably not supposed to say that, but uh, <laughs> that, um, that is Andrus as a kid being at this sort of medieval fair and seeing a caged monkey and being terrified of it and that sort of becoming the idea of a demon in his head. Hmm. And that so when he's painting the the demon in his own when he's painting the twelve monk the monkey face um on the wall with his blood that that's uh, that's where like the origin of the monkeys thing came from is that he's 
you know, he considers the 12 primaries that he sees in his head, they are the sort of the 12 monkeys. And so there's like the symbiotic nature between the name of the 12 monkeys and the primaries that they wanted to do away with. Um, and ultimately, so the I, demon yeah. kind of came first, and then the monkey was just the representation of that. Yes, yes, because the because oh. the kid because he'd seen this this monkey and had been terrified uh, by it. The monkey was a really good actor too. It was a shame um, that we didn't get to use that stuff because <laughs> um, the monkey just like I don't know. He was a Czech <laughs> monkey, so I could not pronounce it. It was like probably like you know uh, like. Gustav or Jan or something, you know, it was something, <laughs> it was something like that. Um, and, um, but yeah, so, you know, the, the interesting thing and, 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 and I sort of always looked at it this way, but, you know, again, a lot of these things are up for interpretation, but to me, I'm not sure primaries exist in a world that doesn't have time travel. So that like, you know, there's time travel, Cole becomes the djinn, and as a result of that, this murmurs through time backwards, and you have people who are suddenly bestowed with knowledge of time and how to fix it. Like, they're like mm. the antidote to what Cole, to Cole's virus. Um, that's probably debatable, you know, because, um, you know, maybe time exists with primaries, regardless, but primaries seem to be really just entrenched in turmoil and specifically about the djinn and the army of the 12 monkeys. So in my mind, time travel created primaries as like an antibody. Wait, and so then is that, oh, damn it. It's all a loop. <laughs> but then, no, no. If you just trace it, you're going in circles. But it's like, you know, it's... It's like the time travel begets the djinn, which begets the 12 monkeys, which in opposition begets the uh, the antibodies, which are the primaries, and that's why they're all sort of connected together. Um, but, but then does that mean at the end of the series, if Jennifer is still in touch with time, why would she be if time travel was eradicated? Exactly. Damn it. <laughs> all roads. They do make the comment, it. though, earlier in the series that, you know, we help time think. So what if the primaries are simply you know, time's consciousness. It, yeah, it, it could be. It could be. Um, you know, and that's honestly something I maybe we discussed or maybe we didn't. But my personal thing is that I'm not sure primaries exist without time travel because hmm. they seem to be born to sort of try to keep time together. And why would time need to be kept together if it wasn't being pulled apart? Right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole character of time, super interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the series, it's almost like time, you know, there was all of this discussion throughout the series, like, who's judging us for our actions if all of this is reset? Yeah. And at the end, time in some ways does ultimately like render the judgment with Cole, right? Mm -hmm. Like he gets that second chance because time decides that he's the time owes him and that he's earned it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, again, it's make of it what you will. Like you, you could, you know, if you wanted to, you could take like any statement made a, uh, about God, let's say in theory, replace the word God with the word time. And it suddenly becomes like a staple of our show. Like, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. there's, there's definitely somewhat of a metaphysical aspect of time. Um, 
or there isn't like literally it's it's you could you could spin your head self in circles trying to come up with the with what is the right answer and the answer is there isn't a right answer like you know is it just the you know the sci-fi mathematics of you know uh, of time travel or is it you know is there something else you know sort of in charge um you know and and i'm not even gonna say this <laughs> do it no. <laughs> but like but like now you, you know if, if time is a, is a sentient being and it like you know cole sacrificed himself uh for time it dumps him in paradise right like you know which is more like the red forest than reality <laughs> but you know but it, again like it's you know i uh, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty well wired for this debate, but it's not, I, I you know, it's not really my intent. Like, I'll, I'll be happy to like point <laughs> red forest <laughs> things, but like, it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't. Um, I'm, I'm neither right nor wrong. Let's say. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's sort of like if you wanted to think about it, almost like a, a myth, right? Mm-hmm. Where the hero gets their reward yeah. at the end. Although what's like such the great twist is he's not really, like he is the chosen one, but he's not really. And his reward is like a mortal life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but yeah, there's yeah. a lot. Yeah, he's Pinocchio. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, he's a real boy. <laughs> um, so tell us about what you're working on now. Uh, so working on uh, Mayans MC, we just uh, season one just uh, aired, finished airing a couple of weeks ago. It's it's done really well. We we're supposed to start our room again in uh, in January. Um, but the the funny thing is is that I had uh, I was on set for uh, for an episode I was doing, and I this was me meeting Edward James almost for the first time, right? And so Edward James almost comes up and he's, uh, he says, Hey, Tretta, <laughs> I'm Eddie, you and me, we have mutual friends. And I'm like, Oh shit. Like, <laughs> you know, I have a bunch of like Mexican, you know, uncles who I'm sure haven't done great things in their lives. And I'm like, Oh no, what is this? And he's like, James Callis, Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I worked, you know, I did masks and I did thief and I worked really close with James. We spent, you know, all those time both in Toronto and in Prague together. And, and I was very lucky that, um, that, uh, you know, James and uh, James Callis had, um, had, you know, emailed Eddie and like put in a really good word for me. So that was nice. So, you know, instantly I was in the good graces of our, 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 our one of our big stars. But, um, so, you know, it always comes back. It's always the loop, right? Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, it, it's great and do that. And, um, you know, like, you know, Terry writing new stuff. I wrote a, I'm on hiatus now and, and for fun, I, uh, I, wrote this uh, I had this idea when we were in like the last season of 12 monkeys I remember telling Terry I'm like because we were like you know with time travel there's certain things you could do like in the last season like you know I got to do 1970 Baltimore Street Kids and the apocalypse and 1940s German occupied France and medieval like when are you going to get to do that again right and um and I was like, you know, I kind of had this idea for another thing sort of in the same sort of world. And um, I kind of told him, he's like, that sounds pretty cool. And then, uh, so I just wrote a draft of that. So I'm just going to sit on it for a bit and 
try to figure out the rest of it because, you know, you'd want to stick the landing. But, um, so that, that's, you know, it's fun. So for me, it's, it's, it's cool to get to sort of travel between like <clears throat> doing like very grounded stuff and, um, doing stuff that's more genre based. Um, yeah. So I'm having fun. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, and that cast is incredible. So definitely have to catch up on that. Oh yeah. No, they're, they're all super, super great and, and, and super amazing. And, um, yeah, like uh, I couldn't be working with nicer people, honestly. Um, and then have you been watching anything mm. that or had a chance to watch anything <clears throat> yeah, that you particularly enjoy? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been catching up on stuff. And um, we just finished um, Haunting a Hill House. Uh-huh. Oh, so good. Which is so good. Um, that's just what? like you – that's one where you, you, you're done with it and you're like, very good. Very that nice, show does not have done. a right to be as good as it is. It yeah, does like, not and have like, a right. And spoiler alert, just a spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen the end, but Sean, mm. the debate between, and I'm forgetting their names, but the husband and wife, the mother and father, uh-huh. did that seem familiar to you at all? I, you see, like, <laughs> at the end? You know, I, <laughs> not, not in a bad sort of way. Like, no, no, I, no. I, I, mean, I, I just mean like thematically. No, not in a common way at all. I didn't feel like, I mean, like ripped off or anything. No, it, like, um, no, it's, it, I mean, the show was so well done all the way around from like the directing and the writing and, 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 um, but they do all the things that we, you know, just really appreciated. Like they called back to things, they tied things together and it was just like, you know, yeah. So 12 monkey fans will definitely like, um, will, will definitely sink their teeth into that one. There's also a movie and I forget where it's from. It's like either maybe Argentinian or, um, I forget it's it's a it's a Latin American movie and it's called The House at the End of Time and it's I think it's on Netflix. I watched it on Netflix. It's in Spanish, but uh you guys must see this movie. Um you you will love it. And and to explain why I'm mentioning it in a 12 monkeys thing would be giving away more than I want to. Um, but it does have the word time in the title. Uh, but it, it, you should just Google stuff. It, it, uh, it, it definitely, um, it, it, it's, I met the director. I was right. I written this movie that, um, we were looking for a director for, I think in between seasons two and three. And, um, I met the guy. So I saw his movie and it, it was incredible. And, um, and definitely like came into the room. Like I couldn't, you can't even pitch this movie, like say what it's about and say the ending without like getting sort of choked up. Cause it's, it has, it has like tremendous emotional wallop at the end. And, um, and we definitely like when we did episode four or five, which was that episode, definitely Oliver, who was the, who was the first writer on it was like, you have to watch this because this is the vein of what we're trying to do. Um, so you guys will love it. Okay. So Guaranteed. the house at the end of time. The house at the end of time. Yeah. I think it's on Netflix. If not, it's what, even if you got to get on iTunes, well worth it. Nice. All right. Sean, thank you so much. So sure. generous with your time. No this problem. This is so fun. It's fun. I mean, we like, you know, we so appreciate people doing the, uh, the deep dives on these and, you know, recognizing the little things that, most of the time we thought nobody would pick up on. Um, so we're, we're very grateful that uh, you guys are doing this anytime. 
Oh, thank, thank you, you so much. No, that I mean that's awesome to us too. You know, we just we're being crazy. Yeah, <laughs> so I mean, we're just yelling at each are... other about it all the time, anyway. So we figured maybe five other people would want to listen to us yell about it. <laughs> uh, well, it's thank a big, you so much. It's a big loop of validation. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> um, Sean, thank you so much, and uh, we mean it. We would love to have sort of like the. Uh, the epic end of the series smackdown with you and Terry. Yeah. You guys are up for the debate. Whenever. Awesome. I mean, by then he may just concede. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's, yeah. Anytime. All right. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks a lot. Sean. Cool. All right. Bye guys. Oh, wow. Damn it. <laughs> I think it's like the eighth time I've said damn it. <laughs> well, I hope you guys all sleep well tonight. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to. <laughs> Beep, I feel like you're, you're feeling much better about things, but I'm going to have to go do some thinking. I mean, I just have one question for you, Cece. No, don't do it. Where are you right now? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not, not in the good place. That's for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much to Sean Tretta. So unbelievably generous with his time. And I feel like that was the best articulation of the other side of the debate of the Red Forest we've heard. So it'll be fun to hear what everyone has to think about that after, after they listen. Our next episode is going to be our rewatch of episodes 106 through 108. Aaron from the Meditation Pod is going to be joining us. Very exciting. And then after that, we will have our interview with Todd Stashwick coming to you, which we are super, super excited about. So good luck sleeping tonight, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>